we're going through Philippians for the next four weeks, or four months, I should say. So we'll be in Philippians for a long time. Uh, we're in chapter one now. Uh, Catherine just just read our passage, and it's the whole series is just focused on joy. And this is a big theme throughout the book of Philippians. And so we're going to get joy out of it. We're going to see unity in it. And um, today's no different. We're going we're gonna to see both those themes uh, throughout the sermon today. So um, if you're new with us today, if this is one of your first times here and you haven't filled out a Connect card yet, you can actually uh, take that out of your program. And then when the offering bag goes by later, you can slip it in there. Your name, your phone number, um, email address, uh, whatever you want to put on there for us to contact you. And we'll just shoot you an email um, and coffee, lunch, and just get to know you better. So put that in the offering bag as it goes by later. And then um, another announcement I want to make is Easter. Easter's coming up. So Easter's at the end of this month. We're in March already. Easter's coming up. And we're going to have baptism on Easter. So Michelle's going to talk about it a little later. But if you haven't been baptized before, come talk to me about it. And um, we'll, we'll walk you through what it means. If you just want to know what baptism is, definitely feel free to ask me about that as well. But we already have three or four people lined up for baptism on Easter, which is really exciting. So we get to celebrate Resurrection Sunday with baptism. So it'll be awesome. Um, a couple of you guys have commented on the way I'm dressed today. You guys are like, man, you're looking sharp. Uh, my parents are in the house today, so I wanted them to see me like dressed nicely, not like last week, as was pointed out by Mel <laughs> this morning. So um, thought I'd dress a little nicer. This tie actually is my father-in-law's from the 70s. So he was going to sell it at a yard sale, and I saw it, and I just took it. I'm like, that's going to come back in style in, in about five years. And so, right? It's back in, you guys are like, oh, I don't know. Okay. Um, so, like I said, we're in Philippians. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll be preaching through, I'll be preaching through chapter one today. And this week, so this week I was at um, Power to Change, which is a campus ministry. And I was speaking there Thursday night, and it's just, it's just a bunch of university students. And they asked me to speak on the topic of transcendence and imminence of God. Yeah, yeah, who, who did that? Uh, that's like, it's a pre- these are pretty lofty topics. But this was at U of T, so they're, they like, they're like pseudo-intellectuals. They're like, oh, we, we got this. So it was all on reconciling tensions. We preached, uh, I just taught on what, transcendence and imminences, and really try to bring it practical to them. But it's always, um, for me, it's always nice being around university students. We actually have a group of university students uh, here today from North Carolina uh, helping us out. And so it's always good for me to be, yeah, that's okay, you could have clapped. (laughs) Um, It's it's always kind of refreshing for me to be around university students. it reminds me of how old I am now, because I, I tend to think I'm still in my 20s. I tend to think I'm still there. I forget that I'm 35 and that they look at me. Yeah, exactly. They, they look at me like I'm this old man, and I think I'm like cool. I'm like all in there, and they're like, you don't even use the word cool anymore. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. So, um, but they just have this unique perspective, and the world's, when you're in university, it feels like the world is before you, and they're, 
they're just they're seeking advice and counsel. And so after I spoke on transcendence and imminence, um, Butram came up to me and said, "Hey, can you give us advice? Um, can you give us advice uh, for just being in our 20s? Because I'd said things in there like." Um, stop asking what God's plan is for your life. Which they're like, what? Uh, because you're just asking, you're just waiting for something to happen. I'm like, just walk through the open doors that God has before you. And like things like that, they'd never really, they'd never really heard before. Um, they, they, they just never heard like, hey, there's an open door, walk through it and see what God does. And so I told them things like that, and they came up afterwards and, you know, told them in their 20s, it's for like... Um, it's for finding your giftings and the way you influence people and discovering your, your passions. We think we have to have it all figured out. Uh, we think we have to have our whole life set before us in our 20s because that's, that's what the world says. Figure everything out right now. What you're going to do the rest of your life, you need to figure it out in your 20s. And I said, no, that's, that's a cultural construct that, that, that's been put on you. You don't need to do that. You can take your 20s and try things out here and try things out there. And so I was telling them all these things. Um, but what I didn't tell them is something that I wish I would have told them, which is actually what I'm preaching on this morning, is uh, this, this bottom line here. Um, this is what I want you to remember. If you don't remember anything else this morning... I want you to remember this. Use your greatest point of suffering as your greatest asset for ministering. And I wish I would have told them that in their 20s, they need, to, they need to figure this out. Use your greatest point of suffering as your greatest asset for ministering. A lot of you guys are out of your 20s, and you haven't figured this out. Like, you haven't heard this before. You haven't allowed God to do this in you yet. Um, there's still hope. Um, so we're going to talk about this this morning. How do we use our greatest point of suffering as our greatest asset for ministering. This is what Paul does. So if we look at verse 13 or verse 12 in, in Philippians chapter 1, he writes to the, the church at Philippi. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So Paul's in prison right now. He's, he's in a Roman prison, and a bunch has happened to him that's led up to this point. And so it's not just bad enough he's in prison, but before he got to this point, a few years ago, he was in Jerusalem, and he was proclaiming Christ. He was preaching the gospel. He was, he was just sharing the, the love of Jesus. And he ended up getting mobbed and beaten. And the authorities came, and they didn't arrest those who were, mob, who were mobbing him and beating him. They actually arrested him. I guess they figured if he's the one getting beaten, then we should arrest him. He's a troublemaker. So they arrest Paul. He gets arrested in Jerusalem. He gets put in prison. He goes before all these tribunals and councils and uh, judges. And I don't know if you guys have been in a courtroom before, but um, it's like a really, uh, it's just a horrible process. It's a long process. It just takes, it takes forever. It's draining. So Paul's had to do this. I see some lawyers like, yeah, <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> um, some are smiling. <laughs> um, and so uh, Paul had to do this multiple times, through, to going through different, different tribunals and councils. And then he gets put in prison after all that. For two years, he gets transferred to Caesarea. He's in prison for Caesarea just for sharing the gospel. Okay? And he finally appeals to Caesar. 
Um, and then there's an ambush. They want to ambush Paul on the way. And so there's a plot to ambush him that gets foiled. This is all in the book of Acts, by the way. So if you're wondering where I'm getting this, this is all in the book of Acts that's uh, in the Bible. So there's a plot to, it's like a movie. There's a plot to ambush him and kill him. And the, the plot is foiled. And he gets put on a ship. And on his way to Rome, going from Caesarea, which is around Jerusalem, to, to Rome, crossing the Mediterranean Sea, his boat gets shipwrecked. So he gets shipwrecked, they wash up on the island of Malta, he gets, you know, like, they've been in the ocean, he finally gets up, you can imagine, like, on a movie, he's, like, crawling on the sand, like, kissing the sand, and, like, ah, and stuff, and, and he gets on there, and a viper bites him, okay, like, a viper comes out and just bites him, and, but he doesn't die, and then he gets to Rome, and he gets put in prison, and so he was in Caesarea in prison for two years, okay, so, He's had, when he says, like, all these things that have happened to me, this is like a three-year span of all these things that have happened to him, beginning from people mobbing him and beating him to now being in prison in Rome and everything in between. And he says, all that's happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And when, when he says advance, he's meaning the gospel has gone into new territory. Like, it has gone forward because of the things that have happened to me. And he says in verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. So the people who are guarding him uh, have, have witnessed this. They know about this. And to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. <clears throat> that word imprisonment there can literally be translated as chains. So he's saying, He's saying here that my chains, my bonds, the things that I have to wear every day is for Christ Jesus. What is it, what would it be like for you to say, my suffering, my chains, what may seem like chains to you or your bonds are for Christ Jesus? Because that's what Paul is saying. So think about what you're going through, what you suffer with, and Paul is saying, and what I suffer with, all these things, they're for Jesus Christ. And the key to Paul's mentality here is he doesn't, he's not reactive. Okay? A lot of times we live life, we go through life, and we react. We react to some things that happen to us over here, circumstances. We react to, um, you know, just things that happen. Paul is actually proactive. If you look at his life in the scriptures, he lives every fiber of his being for Jesus Christ. So when he comes to his, his chains and his imprisonment, in his mind, what else would it be for but for Jesus Christ? What would it take for you to look at your suffering that way? That what else could it be for except for Jesus Christ? So my... Uh, my daughter, so I have a four-year-old daughter and a five-year-old daughter who are literally the best kids in the world. Uh, <laughs> I love them so much. If I, if, I was, if I wasn't a good parent, I wouldn't say that. Um, I, they're, they're amazing. They're so funny. Um, and I keep, anyways, so a year ago, um, they have this toy. And it's, it's about a foot and a half off the ground. And it, it has like different things on it. It's a bilingual toy, so it speaks not French and English. We brought it from the States, so it speaks Spanish and English. Um, 
they have that same toy here in Canada that speaks French and English. Um, so they have this toy, and it, it, it kind of talks to you. Like toys nowadays, if you haven't been around toys, they, they're kind of creepy. Like, they, like if, you leave, if they sense you not playing with them for a while and you leave the room, they're like, where are you going? <laughs> they're like, come back and play with me. <laughs> they say things like that. Um, it's kind of weird. Uh, so like, you'd be wa- like, I walked past their room one time and just like, it just says something and it creeps me out. So, um, but the kids are used to it. So they had this toy about a foot and a half from the ground that they'd always use as a stool. So if you see my girls, they're really petite, they're tiny. Um, and they'd always use it as a stool to get the light switch. They'd use it as a stool to pick something off their shelf, you know, things like that. And so one day I'm walking past their room and Reagan, my four-year-old, or last year, maybe she was three at this time, she um, has the stool in front of her bookcase, and she's trying to reach to get something. And Emerson's just standing next to her like, yeah, get that, get that, you know, like, she's the supervisor. She's like, yeah, she's the boss. So Reagan's standing on this toy. Emerson's, like, telling her what to do. And the toy all of a sudden says, I want to play too. And Emerson, without flinching, looks at the toy, and, and she says, she doesn't want to play with you, toy. She's using you as a stool. <laughs> I died laughing. God wants you to take your chains and your suffering and use it as a stool to reach what he wants you to have. I know the problems you're going through, guys. You guys talk to me about them. I know... Like some of you guys have suicidal thoughts, some of you guys battling depression, some of you guys battling anxiety, you guys have your sin issues, you know, you guys are battling lust and greed and idols of success and idols of family, your marriage is crumbling, you know, you you don't have good relationships because you don't know how to have them, like you have job issues and you know, your boss is a jerk and you can't get along with people at work or, or whatever it is. You have all these, all these things and these things are intended to tear you down. The, the intent for them is to destroy your faith. That's how Satan and the enemy uses these things, to destroy your faith, to tear you down, to make you doubt your faith, to doubt what you're doing. And God says no to that. He says, that's not what I want those to be attended for. And God is in the redeeming business. And he says, you don't have to use that toy as a toy or that thing that's tearing you down as that. You can change the intention of it and you can use it as a stool, as a stepping stone into what I want for you. And Jesus has given us that power to do that. And God wants to redeem whatever you suffer with and whatever you think your chains are and whatever your, your, your bonds are. And he wants to use them for his glory. And this is Paul's mentality. Paul's mentality is, whatever happens to me, it's going to be for Jesus Christ. And that's not just Paul. Jesus has given him the mentality and he just lives in it. He's like, I don't care if I get bitten by a snake after my shipwreck, after I was in prison for two years, after they beat me, after they put me uh, before all those trials, I'm still going to say it's for Jesus Christ. And he takes what the enemy means for harm and for evil, and he says, God, redeem this for your purposes. And that's the beauty 
of the gospel. That's, that's the power we have in the gospel if we're in Jesus Christ. And Paul says because of that, verse 14, most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my chains, by my imprisonment, by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The kingdom advances. When you do that in your life, it's not just for your benefit. The kingdom advances. And that's what happens with Paul. Because he sets this example for others, the kingdom advances. And so what you do as an individual, how you take things, certain situations in your life, how you take your sufferings and allow God to redeem them, speaks volumes in the kingdom. And we see that here, that everyone's just more bold to speak the word without fear. But he says there's two groups. So in verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, he says, from selfish ambition, but others from goodwill and from love and from pure motives. He says, so there's some who are insincere when they do this. Um, they're just doing it out of wrong motives. But there's still the, the construction of this, this sentence, actually, um, how, how it is in the original language. Paul says, how he says it is like, hey, guys, this is kind of unexpected, but it's true. Like we have some people who do this selfishly. And then we have some people who, who um, are doing this out of pure motives. And, uh, and then he says, but that's okay, because all, I do, all I'm rejoicing in is that Christ is, is preached. I rejoice that Christ is just proclaimed and made known. Okay? He's like, forget their motives. If Jesus is being proclaimed, let's just, let's just be okay with that. The problem is... Um, Sometimes people who have wrong motives get right results, but sometimes we get wrong results. And so, if you look at the church, if you look at the church today, hypocrisy is still one of the one of the main issues in the church that keeps people from trusting the church and trust, trusting Christianity and trusting uh, in faith. Um, because they, and it's, it's um, in some respects, it's, it's kind of a, a smokescreen people just throw up. Um, but, you know, they, they see someone who professes to be a follower of Jesus, but they live their life a totally different way. And it just turns people off from the gospel. Um, here's another story about my daughters. My daughter, Reagan, she, she's the four-year-old. Um, she's funny. Like, they're both really funny. Um, they're just, like, they're really witty. And so, Reagan, I asked her one day, I said, uh, if you had a superhero power, what would it be? Like, half of you in your mind just now said fly. Like, I'll just cut the room in half. Half of you were just like, oh, fly. I would totally fly. The other, probably 25% of you said super strength. And then the rest of the 25% was probably a mix of, like, invisibility, uh, I don't know, laser eyes. Um, maybe you want to make everything taste like bacon. I don't know. Um, a, a mix. But so I asked, I asked Reagan this, and she says to fly. Typical, right? She's like, oh, I want to fly. And I'm like, oh, thinking that's, that's typical. She's like, wait. 
and to break things. And I'm like, wait, that's not, <laughs> that's not a superior power. <laughs> um, but inherent in all of us is a superhero and a supervillain. We can have pure motives and we can have ill motives. And that just came out in ring. Like, I'd love to fly, but I also want to break things. And some of you guys, like, you need to realize, like, we've been given this power from Jesus to do awesome things in this world. You've been given the power to uh, be a minister of reconciliation and an ambassador for Jesus and to bring others uh, peace, to, to make peace, Jesus says. We're peacemakers. But all you do in your life is break things. You want to make other people feel worse than you feel. You want to make other people feel less than you feel. All you can do is argue with your spouse. You don't know why, but that's all you can do. You can't get along with the people at work. You don't know why. You just want to break things. In a kingdom that says the, the first shall be last, you still want to be first. Um, it's just in you. But Jesus has given us the ability to fly. And he says, don't be content with breaking things around you. I've given you this, this totally different purpose. You know, we talk about, it's not up here. We talk about identity and destiny in Christ all the time. This is our, our mission statement, our vision statement as a church. F discovering your identity in Christ and your destiny in Christ. And Jesus has given us a certain destiny in him. And it's all the same for all of us, okay? Let me walk through this real quick. We all have the same identity in Jesus. All of us. Son or daughter, we have the same identity. And that we are approved, that we are his, that um, he's given us his righteousness. And then we all have the same destiny in Christ. And this is where we get confused. We think we have different destinies. We all have the same destiny in Christ. And that's to do these things that we've been talking about. This ability he's given us to be peacemakers and to reconcile people to him. And to, um, uh, he's given us the power to love in a way that casts out fear. He's given us the power to love in a way that's, that's perfect and that's enduring. And that people see and they want and that's infectious. He's given us the power to better the world around us, to, to call the image of Christ out of each other. He's given us that. Like, we get to call the image of God out of each other. Like, how beautiful is that? And he's given us all this. And that's your destiny in Christ. And then the second part of our statement is influencing our city and the world. And that's where your personality comes in. That's where your giftings come in. That's where your influence comes in, um, is in that second part. But all of, all of us have the same identity and the same destiny in Christ. And it has to go in that order. We find identity in Christ first, and he gives us this purpose, this destiny. And then we learn how to influence the city through those things, and our world through those things. And he's given us this to soar and to fly. And he says, stop breaking the relationships around you. You don't have to live in an ungracious manner. Your marriage doesn't have to be a constant battle. 
your, your position at work, even though you might not want it and you want a different position, doesn't have to be drudgery for you because he's given it to you for, for a specific purpose. You know, your, your singleness doesn't have to be a waiting game. It can be a time where you're just proactively living for Jesus. And so whatever your situation is, whatever your, your bonds are, whatever your, you, you consider your suffering, your, you know, we can go through, we'll be talking about mental health over the next couple of, couple of months. Um, like we're all, you know, we're all on this, this, uh, this is Seth, we're all on this mental health spectrum. And, you know, your, your, um, your, your depression may feel like chains and bonds to you, but, but Jesus wants you to actually fly in that. He wants, you to, he wants to redeem it for a different purpose. The enemy wants, intends it to break you down and to cast doubt on your faith, but Jesus wants to build you up through it. And so, um, Paul here says that there's this group who just tears down constantly, and there's this other group who, who wants to build up. And he's calling us to be that, that latter group, to do things out of love and purity and, and sincerely. So how do we do that? How do you do that, and how do we do that as a church? So I'm going to give you three things here. So one is <clears throat> you need to begin using your suffering for God's glory. We've been talking about that. You just need to, it's, it's really as, as uh, it's not easy, but it's as simple as a mentality shift, a perspective shift, okay? This is, this is the Gospels. This is the New Testament. The New Testament is all about the life of the mind. And Paul says, the writers of the New Testament say, hey, guys, it's as easy as this. Stop thinking on things that are going to depress you. Stop thinking on things that make you anxious. Stop thinking on things that are going to tear you down. And instead, think on what's true. Instead, think on what's noble. This is Philippians. Instead, think on what's of excellence. And he says it's, that's it. And this is actually couched in a passage where he says, don't be anxious. Now think on these things. Stop thinking about that. Start thinking about this. So it's as easy sometimes as just... Uh, or as simple sometimes as, as this mentality perspective shift. You just need to begin using your suffering for God's glory. And God is in the redeeming business. Stop worrying about your mistakes. God wants to redeem your mistakes. You know, we get so focused on, uh, and not that this is, hear me out through the whole thing. Don't like take a piece of what I'm about to say and run with it. So we get so focused on, the question of what is God's plan for my life? Because if you're a Christian, you want to be in the will of God, right? And you want to be in God's plan. Um, we get so focused on, God, what's the next step? What am I supposed to do next? But you don't really want a God who tells you what to do all the time. How many of you guys love somebody else telling you what to do all the time? My four- and five-year-old don't like me telling them what to do all the time. So I'm assuming you guys hate that as well. Um, so we don't really want a God who tells us what to do all the time. And guess what? We don't have a God that does that because he's given us freedom to choose. 
Okay? So sometimes we think God's plan is this, and if I step here, I'm outside of God's plan and God's will. Okay? And that's not necessarily the case. Now, if we're talking about sin, yes, there's a, there's, there's a distinction. This is sin. This is not sin. God's will is not sin, not to sin. Okay? That's, that's simple. But when you have, should I take this job or should I take this job? And you're like, God, I want to do what you want me to do. Sometimes God is saying, just make the right decision. I mean, just make the best decision. There's not a right decision. Just make the best decision. Just make the best decision. (laughs) Number three, um, (laughs) just make the best decision. You have circumstances that help you do that. You have people around you to help direct you. And remember what your identity or destiny is. If it takes away from your destiny in Christ, those things that we just mentioned, then don't take that job. You know, we're, we're, and this can apply to, apply to a whole bunch of other things. But God wants you to be free in living out uh, a plan, his will in your life. Now, let me, let me bring it to, like, I love, uh, Missy and I have been married, we'll be married for 12 years in a couple months. I love my family. Um, I can't really imagine my life without uh, my girls. But... I also think that if I had not gone to university where we met um, and gone to a different university, God would have, I would have had a different way in life that still would have been in God's will. I don't think it was necessarily God's specific will for my life to marry this person right here. Okay? Now, some of you guys are like, Ugh, I, don't, I don't like that. Um, some of you guys, that's, that's like blasphemy. Um, but... Uh, it's not. <laughs> because God has, God, and in no way am I trashing God's foreknowledge, okay? God knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows exactly what's going to happen. But he doesn't predetermine it, okay? He's not fatalistic, you know? Um, if, if my... Uh, just think about this, and this is total tangent. Just think about this in terms of, of sin. If um, my daughters get murdered tomorrow, if I said to you, if I come up here and said to you, that's God's will, that was God's will, that would be totally bogus. You guys would, would think I'm totally crazy. Um, but that's what we say on, on some things, um, things that just happen. I don't think that was, if that happened, I would say, no, that's not in God's will. God's will is not that that would have happened, okay? Um, And guess what? In this world, God's will doesn't always happen. We have evidence of that in the scriptures. So God says his will is that all people will come to the knowledge of the truth. We know that doesn't happen. And so when, when I say you need to begin using your suffering for God's glory, This is because sometimes things happen to you that are outside of God's will, but God wants to use it to redeem it for his purposes. Okay? Let's go to number two. You need to use what God has given you to help others. So it's not just enough for you to begin using your suffering for God's glory, but you get to help others with it. Okay? That's how, that's that's where I say, use your greatest point of suffering as your greatest asset for ministering. You get to help others with it. So I don't know what's happened to you. I don't know what 
what you went through growing up. I don't know what you're currently going through now. But when you start to have a perspective shift on saying, I can use this to help others, I can use my, my struggle with um, one of my, so when I was a youth pastor, one of my youth came to me and he said, and I had no idea, like he was, he was probably my strongest, like spiritual, I thought spiritually strongest youth. He came to me and said, I really have a confession to make to you. Um, I'm a kleptomaniac. And I was like, ha, 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 sure, okay, you've stolen something. Is that what you are? <laughs> oh, uh, he's like, no, actually, I've been stealing stuff for years, and I just can't stop. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what do I do with this? <laughs> um, and uh, just giving him a little perspective shift, like, uh, and how to take that and redeem it for God's glory. And that's exactly where we went. Uh, where we went with it. I don't know how he's doing now. Hopefully he's like not stealing stuff anymore. But um, but he can use that, even something like that, he can use to help others. Others that are going through that. Others that, you know, have tendencies towards that. So start looking at your suffering or even your struggles with sin as ways to help others out of it. Okay? Uh, last one is just on the church. So as a church, we need to create a culture and environment where these things can be lived out. And so it's one thing to say, hey, you struggle with anxiety. You should use that to help others. But when you're in a community and you don't feel like you can do that or be transparent, um, then you're not, you're not going to do that. So that's what the church is for. We get to call things out of people. We get to use this in the church first and then we can use it out out in the world because if you're not if you're not safe enough to say you know i have I have a confession to make to, to someone in the church and to say then i really struggle with lust and pornography and then someone to come alongside you and 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 build you up and help carry that burden with you so that you can use it to help others instead of condemn you and judge you then number 3 is uh then number 1 and number 2 aren't going to happen so we need a place that's safe we need a place where we can create a culture environment where we can actually live one and two out and then we can live them out in our city right so um the question is are we living our values out as a church okay do you guys know what our values are as a church those of you guys who call Trinity Life your home, you're probably like, uh, if you thought about it, you probably list a couple of them. But I'm going to walk through them real quick. So these are our values as a church. Um, movement. Movement is the idea that movement is the idea that uh, we're part of something greater than ourselves, and so it takes the individual nature of our Western culture and say we're part of something greater than that. And we're part of a movement. We're not just a singular church. We're part of a movement of churches in our city right now. We're part of a movement of Christianity around the world right now. And so it, it, it's, a, it's this perspective shift from maybe what, what tends towards selfishness and individualization to a corporate identity. So movement. Transformation is the second one. That's all about transparency. Okay, if... if if um, we're going to be a community that, that is built on transformation, we've got to be a community that's built on transparency. Community. Um, this is First Peter. This is First Peter uh, 5. This is uh, love, unity, compassion. This is understanding. This is sympathy. This is all those characteristics that are, that are awesome uh, we want to build our community on. 
genuineness, transparency, all those things. Truth. We got to be a a community that communicates. Okay? You know why your relationships break down? Because you don't communicate well. It's as simple as that. I was talking to someone this week, and um, we were talking about about this a little bit, and I said, you know, probably 90-something percent of your, your arguments with your spouse, significant other, any relationship, are based on false assumptions. Somebody said something, you assumed they meant this when they didn't mean that, and then you ran with it. False assumption. Um, it offended you, and then you took off with it. That's not truth. Truth is built on transparent communication. So in my family, if something's bothering us, like if Missy says something to offend me, this is exactly what I say to her. You offended me. <laughs> I tell her exactly what happened. Like, you offended me. I'm like, don't say that to me. <laughs> don't say that to me like that. Um, we should be a community that does that. If I say something up here that offends you, don't run off and go tell all your friends. Come to me and say, look, I don't know what you intended. This is how I took it. This offended me. And then I say, you don't belong in this church. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so then I say, <laughs> then I say, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't mean it that way, or I meant it this way, or we actually have communication, right? Communication actually happens. We should be that kind of church. In your body life groups, you should have that kind of communication. If you don't, you're in pseudo-community. You're in fake community. It's community that's nice on the outside, but you don't really talk about things uh, underneath the surface. So in order for that type of community to happen, we need to have truth, and we need to have that truth in communication. And then boldness. These aren't in any particular order. Um, Boldness is all about taking risks of spiritual faith, okay? We're a church, we're a church plant, and we were built on boldness, really, on just saying, just stepping out and saying, God, do whatever you want to do um, with us. So we're always going to be a church that steps out into boldness. That should be in our relationships. That's in our relationship with the city. That's how we engage locally and globally, um, all those things. So um, we need to apply all those three principles in order to be a community like this. So why? Why should we do this? Why is this, why is this important? If you look at Hebrews 12, we'll put it up on the screen. It's because Jesus did it for us. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And then here we go. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. But in order for him to become the founder and perfecter of our faith, he had to do this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. And so Jesus endures the cross because joy was set before him. 
Okay? He saw the joy at the end. And he had to go through something. And the thing he had to go through was the most excruciating thing in all of history. So Jesus goes through this, this intense physical um, death, you know, the cross. You guys have seen, maybe seen like the movies and, and stuff or researched the cross, like very gruesome. All you got to do is read the Bible. You can read Isaiah. And it says that the, the Savior, in Isaiah, it's, he's called the suffering servant. So Isaiah 52 and 53 rehash who this person's going to be pro- or actually prophesy who this person's going to be. And it describes Jesus in a few, it describes the Messiah who will be Jesus in a few ways. It says, says that he's going to be beaten beyond recognition. Like we won't even recognize his face as a man. That's how, that's how badly his physical torture was. Um, we'll be able to see his bones. All this stuff, all this stuff um, is fulfilled in Jesus. We'll be able to see his bones. Like all these things, Jesus, is his, his, his back is whipped with, uh, the lashes, he's nailed to a cross, uh, all those things. The most excruciating death in history, physically, I don't know. One of them, sure. But what was most, what was probably more excruciating for Jesus was the mental and the physical, I mean, the, the spiritual and the emotional anguish he had to go through. Jesus is on the cross and he has the sins of the entire world and all of history on him. The consequence for all that sin. And in that moment, God turns his back on him. God the Father turns his, his face away because God can't see, he can't be in the presence of all that sin because of his holiness. And he, and he turns his back and he's separated from the Father at that moment for the first time in eternity. He's separated from the Father. How spiritually excruciating that that was for him. And Jesus is uh, just carrying all of our sin. Just think about your sin. Think about your faults and when you mess up, your sin in general, and then multiply that by, I don't know, 50 quadrillion. Is that a number? Um, like that's what, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Teresa's an accountant. Is that a number? <laughs> so, um, yeah, like all of, all of that sin multiplied on him at one point. That's why at this, at this time in history, the world went dark. That's why there's a great earthquake. That's like why the world, the, the earth itself felt the impact of this one moment in all of history. And Jesus takes all that on him. How excruciating that, that was. The night before, um, he is praying to the Father about this. And you see his emotions in it because he says, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And as he's praying that, he's actually sweating blood. Like that's how emotionally excruciating it was for Jesus. He's actually sweating blood. And so we see all of that and it culminates on the cross. And so when it says Jesus endured the cross, he's enduring all that. It's, this word is, is literally, it's saying he stayed up 
under it, this pressure, like this whole pressure is pushing down on him, and he had to bear up under it as hard as he could. And he says he despised the shame, and because of that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus does this for you. He does this for the church. He does it, he does it for me. But why? Like, why does Jesus do this? Why does he have to do this? Well, it's because his greatest point of suffering becomes his greatest asset for ministering. And that's the gospel. His greatest point of suffering becomes his greatest asset to ministering to you. And he does it for you. And so if you're not a Christian in here today, if you don't consider yourself a believer, it's important for you to realize this, that nobody else in the world is going to do anything like this for you except Jesus. Think about your closest relationship in the world, and they will always fail you. But Jesus will never fail you. He endured everything for you so that his greatest point of suffering would become an asset, the greatest asset to ministering to you. And if you are a believer in here this morning, that should encourage you to live your life for Jesus. That, encourage you should, to, that should encourage you to go out and, and just proclaim Christ like Paul's doing. He's just proclaiming Jesus. And he gets mobbed for it. He gets beaten for it. He gets put in prison for it. He gets bitten by a snake for it. Even like, even the animals are like, don't do that. <laughs> like, they're, they're biting him for it. And he's in prison for it. And he's, he's waiting as, he's, as he writes this book on joy and unity to the church. You know what he's doing? He's waiting for his impending death. He knows that he's about to die. But he says, I don't care what happens if Christ is proclaimed, in that I'm going to rejoice. Use your greatest point of suffering as your greatest asset for ministering.